All right, hey, can we get a little light up? And if you got your study notes, you might want to pull them out. We've been looking at the greatest prayer that was ever prayed. And beginning in verse 9 of Matthew 6, Jesus tells the disciples, Our Father in heaven, he's giving them a model prayer, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now today, verse 11, the phrase, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I don't know about some of you, but I grew up reciting that prayer every week in the church that I was raised in. And I tended to blow right past the daily bread part, probably because I needed to get to the next part, forgive us our sins, because there's a lot of forgiving that needed to be done. But as I've studied this verse over the years, and I began applying it with more frequency in my own prayer life, I don't think that I, I pray this request the same since I've unpacked it and had a better understanding of what does it mean, give us this day our daily bread. And I'm, I believe that's going to be true for you too, that you'll pray differently after we study this verse today. And I think that we're going to see that Jesus is teaching something that's going to impact us in terms of reducing our anxiety about the future. It will, it will influence us in how we appreciate his presence and his activity in our lives. And I think it will impact us to have a deeper sense of contentment in who we are and how we live. Now just imagine that you were one of the disciples. We don't know which one it was that came up and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so, you know, we want to talk to the Father like you talk to the Father. And so if you were a Jew standing around and Jesus gets to this part of the pray, prayer, give us this day our daily bread, I think you would have known exactly what he was talking about. You would have been gone back to your Jewish roots. You would have remembered your history. You would have been learning about the time that your ancestors had come out of Egypt. And I think that that understanding has a direct bearing on our understanding of the Lord's Prayer. Look at Exodus chapter 16. I printed the text in your study notes. You don't have to look at it. I'm going to read it. But uh, let me just set the context. The people of Israel had been protected from the ten plagues that were going on in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh let them go. And you remember the story. They, they left and they went through the Red Sea. They were led by a pillar of fire at night, by a cloud during the daytime. They had watched Pharaoh's army be destroyed. They had experienced God's provision and his protection and also his deliverance. And so you would think that they would say, God, we're willing to follow you anywhere. You think they trusted with everything. That every single need that they had would probably be met by God because he'd already demonstrated in the past that he was going to get them out of the situation. Well, they're talking to Aaron and Moses here. Take a look at verse 3 and see what a loving and transformed people they had become. The Israelites said to them, this is Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt... There we sat around pots of meat and we ate food, all the food that we wanted. But you brought us into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, and I have to imagine it was probably with a deep, heavy, heavenly sigh. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that's to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, 
In the evening you will know that it was the Lord that brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Jump down to verse 14. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost appeared on the ground and on the desert floor. Now take a time out there. This was so great because my favorite breakfast food was frosted flakes. And so I realized God came up with that idea way back in Exodus. And so, all right, uh, verse 15. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded you. Each of you is to take as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person. And I think an omer is about a quart. Take an omer for each person that you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. And some gathered much and some little. And when they measured by the omer, he, had, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. And then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots, and it began to smell. And so Moses was angry with them. A, a little, throw this in for free. Um, I think I found that that's true spiritually for me too. I think, you know what? I'll spend an hour with the Lord now and it will last me all week long. And it's kind of a principle that God wants you to depend on him every day. And if they, took, if they, if they didn't think God was going to provide tomorrow, they took more than they needed and it turned to maggots. Because God wanted them to trust him every day. A little later, they finally named the frosted flakes manna. And you know what manna means in Hebrew? It is what it is. <laughs> I think they had no clue, so they had to name it something. But it kind of reminds me a little bit of when I was in junior high school. Remember, we'd have those lunches with meat, and we really weren't sure what the meat was. <laughs> Mystery meat, we used to call it, you know. What is it? I don't know. It is just what it is. It is what it is. I talked to a guy uh, this week who had been in prison and he said that was what they said it is what it is uh, when they were eating there but they knew one thing and that was this it wasn't there the day before but they were hungry and they were grumbling and they were telling God and Moses what their needs were and every morning God sent this stuff six days a week I like to imagine that they probably got pretty creative with this manna they probably had manna bread and manna burgers. They probably had fried manna and boiled manna and manna splits. And when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, the disciples probably would have gone back in their minds to history about God's provision for the people, about his care for their need, and they would have this historical context. Now, at the time that Jesus was teaching his disciples, Jewish families from what I've understand, from what I've studied, had probably two main meals a day. They would have breakfast and they'd have dinner. For breakfast, you normally had a piece of flatbread along with whatever else was served. And it was customary for them to say when they were eating their meal, this is our daily bread. So it, it, it was the same as saying, this is our daily meal. Now, one of the things you have to understand about this culture 
I've, seen, I've, I've experienced it, and I've also experienced it in other third world countries. People were hired for one day's work. So what would happen is you'd go to a construction site, and there might be 50 workers, but they only needed 10. And so you just hoped that you would get picked because, because they paid you just every day at the end of the day for the work that you did, and you just hoped that you had enough to bring home to provide something for your family. In fact, Jesus tells an interesting parable. Remember about the workers? Some worked all day. Some got called in the middle of the morning. Some got called in the late afternoon. Do you remember what the all-day workers did? They grumbled because the late workers got a full day's wage. And it's interesting, they didn't grumble against the stinginess of the boss. They grumbled about his graciousness. And they said, that's not fair. And he said, did we agree that I would pay you this? And they said, yes, that's what we agreed to. Hey, men and women, do you know what we get for being in the faith longer? We get the security of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And somebody who comes in at the 11th hour, they get salvation, but they look how they had to live not knowing God. And the anxiety of that. So anyway, when, God, when, when you ask God for daily bread, you are asking for the work and the wage that would buy the bread that would help you survive on a daily basis. So again, when they heard Jesus say, give us this day our daily bread, they would have understood that Jesus was telling them to pray about everything that they needed to exist for the necessities. And so for me, with that background, it's just become a reminder to me that I need to live more in a daily dependence on God for everything. And I think this has great implications for how we pray. First of all, our prayer should begin with gratitude and not with grumbling. You see, prayer, this prayer, has implications of of gratefulness. It's a posture that ought to permeate everything of who we are and how we approach God. Here are the Israelites in the desert and they're, they're grumbling and complaining against God and they had seen his powerful provision and they had seen him separate the Red Sea and protect them from Pharaoh and guide them through the wilderness. And it's so easy, isn't it? So easy many times to forget what God has done for us in the past. Last week, We were thanking him for something. And then this week, we can't remember what in the world God has ever done for us. For the most part, those of us in this room don't need to pray for enough food. But if we were just had the need for the basic survivals, for just enough food, just enough shelter, if you think of it in those terms, anything more than that is an expression of God's bountiful provision for you. How full was your plate at dinner last night? If any of that was more than the daily need, it was an expression of God's bountiful provision. You know, I wish, Kathy and I were talking about this earlier, I wish that we had bought a book when we first got married, and every time we saw God's answer to prayer or the uh, activity of God in our life, I wish we had written it down because there were so many times where we say, can you believe it? Can you believe that God came through here for us? But we forget that stuff. And so we need to take time. And here's what we're going to do. Next Sunday is Communion Sunday. And as we come to the table, we're going to take some time in gratitude to God. And we're going to recount the ways that God has met 
your needs in the past. And so I'd like you to be thinking this week, what's one or two times where I can really look back and say, I knew that God met me right there. And we'll have an open mic and we'll just share before we come to the Lord's table in gratitude to God. Now, the manna, which was God's provision for their needs, it was a reminder to the Israelites of God's love and care. And it was also a revelation of his glory. And I think if you could just think about that every time God meets one of your needs. Now, most of us here aren't in that kind of desperation as when's our next, how are we going to get our next meal? But there are situations that you need God's provision on a daily basis. He's our father. He wants to listen. And the point is there's no limit to our prayers. Everything is a concern and an interest to him. But we fall into a trap sometimes of not telling God what's on our heart. This is not original to me. But Dallas Willard talks about the trap of exclusion. And the trap of exclusion is when we start to filter out the things that we really should be telling God, but we don't. We think, well, you know, it's really not holy enough of an issue. Or it's really not a big enough issue. Or it's really not an urgent enough issue for me to really bring it to God in prayer. We don't want to trouble God. And we don't want to fill up the cosmic airtime on stuff that really shouldn't concern the almighty God of the universe. And the moment you slide into that trap, you start to exclude things that are important to you from God. From your heavenly father. You're attributing to him a lack of interest, a lack of care, a lack of concern for you. And he cares and loves you. And he's the God of the universe, yes. And yes, he's enthroned in the the highest heaven. And yes, he's to be worshipped and respected and adored. But he's your father. And if you fall into the trap of exclusion, then you're not fully participating in a relationship with your heavenly father. I love what C.S. Lewis says, and you know C.S. Lewis is Yep Hutton. He says, we are to lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. That's my problem. I think I need to come to God with who I think I ought to be rather than who I am. So think about this. What is it that you need today from your Heavenly Father? What is it that you need to trust him about? Warren was a business manager at the church I pastored in Illinois for 11 years. He was a relatively young man. He had surgery. In fact, he, he, he retired from IBM early. And he worked for us for a dollar a year as our business manager. And he went in for routine surgery and it went south. And he passed away to the shock of everyone. And Millie, who had been his childhood sweetheart... She was in a place where she was needing to daily depend on God just for the strength to guide her through her loneliness and the heartache and the grief that was at a level and a depth that she'd never experienced before. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. I have a friend named John who has a severe health issue that's crippled his body. He lost his job. He can't drive a car. He can't walk without a cane. His wife left him. And every day he has to depend on God just for the emotional and the physical and the spiritual strength, not only to have hope, but to be there for his young son. And maybe it's a health issue or a physical limitation that you're you're facing. Perhaps you need wisdom for business decisions as you go through the day. 
You know, we've seen some incredible volatility in the marketplace over these last several years. And maybe you just need wisdom to make the right call. Maybe you just need to take a quick business decision and close the door to your office and bow your head or, your, or in your cubicle. And you just commit to prayer, whatever it is, the decision that you have to make. You talk to your father about it. Perhaps you need daily endurance in a marriage that is far less than what you dreamed it would be. Or maybe a moment-by-moment dependence on just staying strong from an addiction or from a relationship that you're trying to stay away from. Or maybe there's a sin that you're dealing with and you just need God's help every single moment. Some of you go through days of depression and loneliness and you don't know how you're going to make it. And I think this prayer is reminding us that God is there for you and that you can depend on him. Or maybe you're just spiritually dry. You just need to come to God and say, God, I feel so distant. I feel so dry right now. I need your help to have faith just to get through this day and to walk through the valley that I'm going through. Because you see, daily bread isn't just about food. But it's about the necessities that you have that day, whether they're spiritual or physical or emotional or relational, whatever they are. They're about the necessities that you're facing. So what is it that you're needing to depend on God for right now? I'm going to pause just for a moment. And I'm going to ask you to just think about that one or two things that you need to depend upon God for right now, this week. And I asked Karen if she would sing a song for us as we're thinking about those things that we need to depend on God for. Matthew 6, 9, it actually starts out, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray in a measure of daily dependence on God for our daily bread, for whatever it is that you just thought about a minute ago, we're to do it with an attitude of submission. You see, in the first part of the prayer we studied a couple weeks ago, God is telling us that his name is to be hallowed and to be revered and to be made holy in who we are and in what we do. And in the second part, it's about total submission to God's will and to God's kingdom and about his purposes being accomplished. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's facing incredible agonizing time. The physical agony that he faced, the Bible says that his pores sweat blood because of the anxiousness. He was going to feel the total separation from his father. And so Jesus facing that made his request known, and he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But then he submitted himself to the Father's will, and he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And I hate to admit this about me, but I get this backwards so many times. I end up praying as if God should be a fully devoted follower of me. I think he should be walking around with me with a legal pad, just waiting to write down all my requests, and then he records it. And then if he doesn't follow up like I ask him to, when I ask him to, where I ask him to, and how I ask him to, then I kind of think, God, why did you let me down? What are you doing? When I catch myself doing that, and it's more often than I'd like to admit, I get it so backwards. 
I'm supposed to be the fully devoted follower. I'm supposed to be the one that says, your kingdom come in my character and in who I am. I'm the one who's supposed to be saying, your kingdom come in my marriage. I'm the one that's supposed to be saying, your kingdom come in my children. I'm the one who's supposed to say, your kingdom come in my workplace. Your kingdom come in my church. I want your kingdom to come and I want your will to be done. So over anything, God, that's what I want. I want to think it. I want to desire it. I want to submit myself to your will. Have your own way. And when we have submitted our will to him, then under the umbrella of his will, we can trust him to meet our needs. And we are daily dependent on him to simply give us what we need that corresponds with his will. Praying in daily dependence on God brings us to one more place, and that's to trusting rather than being troubled. Now, for some of us, that can be a really hard thing to do. We're kind of like the Israelites who tried to save the manna for the next day because we really weren't sure that God was going to come through for us. We don't trust God to actually be there for the next day. He's been there in the past. He's there today. But I'm not sure about tomorrow. And so we start worrying about the future. And some of us, you know, worry can be quite traumatic. My preaching professor told me to make sure that you ventilate your sermons. He said you bring people to an emotional thing. He said you have to release that. Well, I heard this incredible story about Dr. Jerome Frank, who's a psychiatrist at... Uh, Johns Hopkins University, and he knows a lot about worry because whenever he flies and people find out he's a psychiatrist, they want to tell him all of their worries and their problems. And one of the main things when he's flying is people want to tell him about their fear of flying. And so he's sitting next to this guy one time who found out what he did for a living, and uh, the guy, I'm assuming, was kind of a nervous guy. I think a Mr. Potter in the... Uh, uh, a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, you know, the Mr. Potter, the guy always tweaking his nervous kind of guy. So this guy is sitting next to him, and he says, you know, I used to be deathly afraid of flying. It all started when this man brought a bomb on a flight to Denver to kill his mother-in-law. I became so sick about flying because I wondered which passenger was carrying the bomb. So Dr. Frank just probed it a little bit more, and he said, well, what did you do about it? He says, I, I went to one of those special classes for people who are afraid of flying. And they told me that there's one chance in a million that there would be a bomb on a flight that I was flying on. So Dr. Frank said, well, did that make you feel any better? Are you kidding me? At one in a million chances, I'm bound to be blown up sometime. But he went on to say, but this is what I figured. I reasoned that if the chances of having a bomb in a plane were one in a million, the chances of having two bombs in a plane would have to be in the billions. Those were odds that I could live with. So what good did that do you, said Dr. Frank? Plenty. Because you see, ever since I've then, I've been carrying a bomb in my briefcase. <laughs> now, I'm assuming that's not a true story. <laughs> but... You know, for as weird as that guy was, anytime we start to worry about the future, we're not trusting God. Worry is a loss of trust in God's care and in his leadership in our life. Daily dependence through prayer is what builds that. And here's what Dallas Willard writes. Today I have God and he has all the provisions. Tomorrow it's going to be the same thing. And I don't know if you've struggled with worry. 
I don't know if it's been a part of who you are, but if it has, then I want to encourage you to ask God about your needs for this day and what you're facing. And then I want to encourage you to ask God about your needs for the future. Ask him for the faith to trust him with it. Worry makes us think that somehow God's provisions are going to dry up, that his love is going to go stale, and that maybe he's not going to care about us anymore. It's really interesting to me that right after Jesus teaches on give us this day our daily bread, a little later in that chapter, he says, talking about the birds and the flowers and how much he cares about them, he says, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself, for each day has enough trouble on its own. And I think we get caught in the trap of thinking, I've just got to pull up myself by the bootstraps. I've got to make it happen. I've got to do it. And when we pray, it's to be as a child who's absolutely dependent on him. The Bible says, see how much your heavenly father loves you, for he allows us to be called his children. And we are. Jesus didn't say, here's my final thought for today. If you're wondering if we're going to land the plane. He didn't say, forgive, Father, give me my daily bread. But rather, he says, give us our daily bread. And that's a completely different prayer, isn't it? Every time you pray this prayer, you pray with and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we only pray for our own needs with no thought of the needs of others, then we're definitely not praying like Jesus. Do you know anyone who has a need for some bread? Someone who has a physical, emotional, or relational, or spiritual need? Do you pray for them? If our response in prayer is to pray only for us and only about us, we miss the whole point of what prayer is according to Jesus. In fact, shortly after this, Jesus tells a parable about a man who basically he calls him a fool. For some live hand to mouth, but for others it means that I can't pay my electric bill and still get my kids clothes for school. Do you have a good marriage? Praise God for it. But some marriages are really hurting. Do you pray for them? Do you have a life partner who at times when you get tired will pick up the ball for you? Well, how about those single parents who have no such luxury? Are you praying for them? Do you see how un-Jesus-like it is to be praying only for ourselves? And yet, not ever really praying for the needs of those within our own church family or within the needs of the world? I think Jesus is teaching in this prayer that the Christian life is us and not me. And this is a revolutionary and transforming thought for people in our culture, isn't it? Oh, by the way, if you start to pray for the needs of others, God just might use you to answer some of those needs. In fact, next week at Communion Sunday, I want to ask you to consider bringing a bag of food to share with people who really don't have food to put on the table. City Church of Compton will distribute it to people in the neighborhood who are struggling to provide for families. And you know, I think we can learn a lot about contentment and get a proper perspective. Here's what Proverbs says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs, for if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I'm too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Paul says, yet true religion with contentment is great wealth. 
After all, we didn't bring anything with us when we came into the world, and we certainly cannot carry anything with us when we die. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Jesus says, as we pray, give us this day our daily bread. This day, daily, it will do two things. It will meet our needs, but it also allows us to meet him. Moses said in Deuteronomy 8.3, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God could have given them a month's supply of food if he wanted to. But that wasn't the importance of the manna. When Jesus said the word bread to his disciples, I'm sure that they thought about the man in the wilderness. But I'll bet you they also thought about the feeding of the 5,000. And I bet you they also thought about the 1,000 who came and wanted bread. And I bet you that they thought about Jesus' statement when he said the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life, and no one comes to me who comes to me will ever be hungry. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. And I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And so in the end, it's not really about bread. Rather, it's about our need for Jesus, who is the bread of life. And when you boil it all down, these seven words, give us this day, our daily bread, in a way, it's a prayer of desperation because we really need daily, this day, each day, a relationship with God through Jesus the Son, who is the bread of life. Let's stand for the benediction.